Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Zach McCulley, and today I'm joined by Jen Wilkin. Jen is a Bible teacher from Dallas, Texas, and author of many studies for women in home, church, and parachurch contexts. She's also authored several books, including uh, the bestseller, Women of the Word. And she's here today to talk to us about her new book that came out with Crossway earlier in 2021, titled 10 Words to Live By. Jen, it's a joy to meet you, and thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thanks for having me on, Zach. Great. Well, I'm looking forward to talking about uh, this really excellent book. Uh, But before we get to that, uh, maybe you can share with our listeners a little bit more about yourself. Yeah, um, I have been married to Jeff for almost 29 years, and we have five kiddos, and we are uh, at the Village Church in Dallas, Texas. I serve on staff there currently, and um, I have taught women for most of my adult life. I've had the opportunity to teach women the Bible, and it's still my greatest joy to get to do that here at my local church. Very good. Well, Jen, you've written this book. Uh, It's called... 10 Words to Live By, Delighting and Doing What God Commands. And that's a really interesting combination of words there in the subtitle, Delighting and Doing. And it's a biblical combination to be sure. Um, Maybe as an introduction into uh, this book, you can tell us uh, why each of those words are so important for the Christian. Yeah, I'm I'm riffing a little on um, Psalm 40, verse 8, that says, I delight to do your will, O Lord, your law is written on my heart. Um, And I think that when we think about the Ten Commandments, we don't find them delightful. And in many cases, we aren't even sure that we need to do them. We've heard so many messages about the law being a bad thing. Um, This is a recurring theme that I just found to be um, prevalent in the circles that I was in. And so I wanted to write the book um, from the aspect of the delight piece and also the actual doing of the law as um, as what it means to be a believer, a Christ follower. Well, I, I appreciate how you how you pick up and sort of seek to correct this misconception that the law of God and the grace of God are, are fundamentally at odds when in fact they're not, as you say in the book. Um, in you remind us that the commands of God were to be a blessing to Israel, Mm -hmm. uh, not a means to curry favor with God, but uh, to live in freedom before him. And it's the same for us. Um, But before we even seek to understand those commands, um, you tell us that we need some sense of the reality that there is a lawgiver, a higher authority. Uh, So who is God that he should give us his law? Yeah, God, you know, He's not just the lawgiver. He is the source of all things. And the Bible tells us that he's infinitely good. And so when we think about the commands of God, we should see them um, as extensions of his character. They're good uh, because they come from him. And they're for our good uh, because he only does what is good for his children. 
And we can trust that because he is the source of all things and he holds all knowledge and he holds all wisdom, that what he commands is only done in wisdom and with full grasp of the implications of every single thing that he asks. So they're trustworthy because he's trustworthy and they're good for us because he is good. Um, They're timeless expressions of his eternal, unchanging nature. And you tell us that that in in this context of understanding God as one who has no rivals, that it's in that context that we we sort of understand the urgency to follow his commands, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, to have no God before him, uh, to worship him alone. Um, But can you tell us what's the relationship between that depiction of God uh, and, and what we see in the first commandment, uh, and what's commanded in the second word. Uh, do we learn something new about God uh, and our worship from this command? Yeah, it is interesting. I think a lot of times people, um, they, they read the first commandment, you know, you'll have no other gods before me, and then they get to the second one, you won't make a graven image. And it seems like, well, didn't you just say that? Like, what is the distinguishing factor there? And what the first word is saying is, you should have no other gods before me because there are no other gods. I mean, that's that's essentially what has been established by God um, prior to the giving of the Ten Commandments. We had ten plagues in the book of Exodus that were pointing toward the truth of the Ten Commandments. The ten plagues established that there is no other God. So the first command is really an invitation into reality. It's saying there is only one God, and it's Yahweh, um, which is going to distinguish Israel, obviously, from the Egyptians, but also from the Canaanites, where they are going to be going. So this statement is made so clearly, and then this follow-up statement, uh, you shall not make a graven image, it can seem like, well, you covered that. Um, but but what getting a, getting a, getting to the issue of a graven image is telling us is that there are ways that we can think of God, conceive of God, um, that are less than God, and therefore um, dilute any pure worship that we could offer. So the sort of the classic example is the golden calf, which is. Um, it's not a cow or a bull, it's a calf. And if you think about the, the principal deity uh, in Canaan is Baal, and he is he's a bull. And then there's the principal deity Apis back in Egypt, and he also is a bull. And so when Egypt decides, when Israel decides that they're going to worship something uh, that they are loosely attributing to Yahweh himself, it's sort of a smaller, snugglier version of what everybody else is worshiping. And, and this is exactly what we can be tempted to do with God when we decide that we don't want to think about his transcendency or his justice. We just want to think about his mercy and grace. Um, we carve him into an image that is less than the full witness of who he is in the scriptures, something that we're more comfortable with. Well, if this second command, it sort of helps us understand better the importance of right, rightly worshiping God, right ways to honor God. Um, and again, the, this way that leads to flourishing and closeness with God. Um, how does the third command sort of intense, intensify? Uh, how does it in, how does it deepen this understanding of how we ought to relate to God? 
Yeah, the third the third command is the one that I still get an eye twitch from my childhood growing up uh, with my mom, who was like, if you say anything, like you would never you would never say God in any context other than like if you were talking about him, you would you would never swear, obviously, using the name of God. And that was what I thought was the sum total of not taking the Lord's name in vain. But really what's happening with the Ten Commandments is they're they're building in significance. And so um, when we get to taking the Lord's name in vain, we've already started to develop a habit of saying, oh, well, these are easy. Like, okay, I, I won't I won't make a graven image that's simple. I just won't pick up carving tools. And then you realize, no, 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 it, it doesn't matter if you never actually physically whittle an idol. You have other ways of doing that in spiritual terms. And so then when we get to the third word, um, don't don't take the Lord's name in vain. We can be like, great, I'll just never swear. Um, But the significance of the Lord's name is it's a reference to the sum total of his character. And so even, you know, we have the habit of praying in Jesus name when we pray. And a lot of us think it's just like um, sort of a special way to make your prayer actually find its way to God because you followed the formula. Uh, But praying in Jesus name means praying in, in accordance with the character of Jesus Christ. We're saying, um, let it be done according to your will when we say that. So then, you know, you, you bounce that concept up against not taking the Lord's name in vain. Well, anytime that we um, think, speak, or act in a way that uh, diminishes or distorts uh, the image of God, then we've essentially broken the third command. So um, as is going to be true of all of the Ten Commandments, when we meditate on them, when our delight is in the law of the Lord and on it we meditate, we begin to understand that it's not asking of us a checkbox, bare minimum obedience, but that there's an expansive obedience available to the believer who um, is striving to obey because they delight in the law of the Lord. Well, Jenna, I want to ask you to share some of the second half of the book sort of in bulk on these commands uh, regarding the Christian in relationship to others. Uh, But before we get there, let me just quickly ask you to speak on this really insightful comment uh, you have in your chapter on the Sabbath. Uh, You say, we remember the letter of the Sabbath command by resting from labor, and we remember the heart of the Sabbath command by laboring for the rest of others. What is the letter of the Sabbath and what is the heart of the Sabbath? Well, the letter of the Sabbath command is just that you yourself would cease from work uh, and thereby enabling anyone who might have to work on your behalf to also cease from from laboring. But there's uh, an expansive obedience here. And that's what I would describe as the difference between the letter and the heart. The letter of the law is saying, what is the least thing I have to do to be obedient to the law? But the heart of the believer is stirred out of love and affection for the Father. And so it's not asking, what's the bare minimum? It's saying, how can I go beyond the bare minimum? How can I look for additional ways to fulfill the Sabbath command? And when you follow this, the, the frequent occurrences of the Sabbath command, either explicitly or in principle throughout uh, the other books of the Pentateuch, specifically I'm thinking of Deuteronomy right now, you find the principle of Sabbath or the heart of the Sabbath command applied to rest for all kinds of things, rest from debt, rest from um, servitude. Um, the land gets to rest every however many years. And so rest is an expansive idea. 
And then you see Jesus who describes himself as the Lord of the Sabbath, healing the hand, uh, the withered hand of a man on the Sabbath. Uh, he's granting rest to the man's suffering on the day of rest. And of course, then the Pharisees accuse him of, of being a lawbreaker because he's worked on the Sabbath. And he says, no, you've missed the heart of the command. Well, Jen, I want to look now to the second half of the book, and you've told us in the introduction, uh, sort of in this pushback to the misconception that the Christian faith cannot have rules and still be uh, about a relationship, uh, and you remind us there that that faith is personal but also communal, uh, and that in addition to these commands helping us live in right relationship with God, they also help define and protect those relationships with others. Um, these latter commands here uh, that remain, they, they demonstrate a serious concern for the dignity of life, uh, of the image of God in human beings, of valuing and honoring people honestly. If we're worshiping uh, God how he has commanded us to, why does it matter how we act before other people? Well, if other people are made in the image of God, and this is actually one of the reasons that the second command is so significant, um, we don't make idols of God because we are created to be the image bearers of God. Um, we are his representatives here on earth and, and you're in, you're made in the image of God, whether you ever come to saving faith or not. This is why human beings have inherent value. And so we ought not to just be looking for how we can um, enjoy the benefits of that. We should be looking for how we can extend the care to other image bearers that they might not even know to seek for themselves. And so all of the latter portion of the Ten Commandments are talking about the horizontal field of relationships. The first ones are talking about the vertical. It's authority, um, submission to the authority of God, submission to the authority of elders. And then it turns and becomes about the one another's. Uh, in fact, um, I would argue that any New Testament one another that you can point to is in some way pointing back to um, a principle that underlies one of the second half of the Ten Commandments. Well, Jen, it, I, I noted that at the end of each chapter, uh, you include a little section on earth as it is in heaven uh, with a few statements that seem to elevate the Christian's mind for what's ahead. Uh, you've described the commands of God as working to fortify our hearts for the journey home. Uh, and it's good to, to also think of how life now may anticipate that journey's completion. Um but as we start to wrap up, I want to ask you, for the person who is not a Christian, suppose they take up your book, uh, and the commands of God seem more like a burden than relief, how does the law function for the unbeliever? How do they come also to find beauty in the law? Yeah, for the unbeliever, there is no beauty in the law. Um, the unbeliever lives in rebellion to God's law and is dead in sin. And so um, we talk about the three uses of the law. Um, the law serves as a mirror to point out our sin to us. Um, and then the law serves as a rod. It prevents the spread of, um, of sin and evil because um, there are consequences, you know, for breaking the law. And then the last use is that the law shows us what is pleasing to the Lord. And it's that third use that involves delight. We delight to do the will of the Father because we know that we have been um, moved from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light through the, the, the perfect obedience of Christ and his life poured out on the cross. 
But for the unbeliever who does not know that freedom and is still in bondage to sin, the law of God can do nothing but sit in judgment on them because until they have been set free um, through the saving work of Christ, they are slaves to sin in the truest sense. Um, Sin has full dominion over them. It has complete authority over them. And even when they perform righteous acts, they cannot perform them from the right motive because their hearts are still hearts of stone. But once their hearts have been transformed from hearts of stone to hearts of flesh, then they too learn to have the law written on that heart of flesh and to delight in it. So that's why it's such a beautiful thing to see how the role of the law changes from hanging over us in judgment to then being under our feet, pointing to us the path of righteousness once we are in Christ. Well, Jen, I really appreciate those comments now as as we're wrapping up the discussion on the book. Uh, And it's been a pleasure to hear from you about it. Uh, but before we sign off, uh, can you share with our listeners what writing projects you have in store? Well, um, I have been publishing in two parts a study of Exodus, which is probably not a surprise since you can tell that I had an affection for ta- talking about the Ten Commandments. And that actually came from the first time that I taught through Exodus and realizing that we so rarely did spend any time thinking about the Ten Commandments at all, um, that it was a good opportunity to do so. So. I've already released the first half of the study, and then the second half will be coming out in January, and it's um, essentially just a a line-by-line study through the book of Exodus. And then uh, after that, I'll be releasing a study on 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. So no book projects ahead of me right now, although I do hope to write another book at some point, but focusing on releasing the Bible studies that help people grow in Bible literacy um, by taking them through entire books of the Bible from start to finish. Very good. Well, those all sound like great projects. Um, But for now, thank you for writing this book. It's called 10 Words to Live By. It's out now with Crossway. Uh, And Jen, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me on, Zach. It was a pleasure to get to talk about the book. Great. And thank you all for listening. I'll see you next time on New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network.